Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, worship team. And it was um, just an encouragement. I, I hope you feel the same thing. I, I, I chose to sat down here um, just to hear you all singing and sing with you. Um, and it always encourages me when you gather with other believers and you hear uh, praises being sung to who God is and what God is like. And there's something that stirs in you. And that's natural because you were designed for worship. And, and so there is something in that, and it should draw you in. And so so thankful uh, that you're here this morning with, with us. Welcome. Uh, my name is Kyle Cox. I'm the student ministries pastor here at the church. Um, I've been told by some of my middle school uh, students and friends who like to sit in the bleachers that they would like a shout-out. So there it is. You get your shout-out. Now pay attention. Okay? So there, that, that's done. Check that box. Okay? Um, but we are glad you are here this morning. Um, we are going to be uh, studying the book of James together. And all the students in, who are in here just kind of probably rolled their eyes and been like, again? Because here's what's happened in our student ministry, just to give you a quick recap of this last school year. We started in August going verse by verse through the book of James. And we finished just a couple weeks ago our last uh, worship service of the school year officially um, before we enter our summer worship services, finished with the last verse of the book of James. And so we have gone through it. And through the course of this school year, I have been rigorously studying this book myself, and God has done so much and taught me so much, and honestly has stepped on my toes so hard that I feel like they are bleeding. Um, and so I, I tell you all that because I'd like to just share this morning a couple of thoughts from the book of James, kind of an overview of some things from there, and that's why in your notes you'll see you just have a blank page. So fill in however you feel led, okay? Um, and hopefully God will speak to you and move through you as we look into the study of the book of James. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can just put your finger on James chapter 1. We're going to jump around to a bunch of different places this morning, and we are not going to start with one specific passage, otherwise I'd have you stand and read with me. Um, what are we fighting for? That's the question I want to start with this, this morning. What are we fighting for? Uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, and obviously we want to recognize those who gave their life in fighting for our country. And I did not intend for that to mirror what we're doing this morning in the sermon. It just so happened to be the same. Um, but what are we fighting for is the question. What are we fighting for as a church? What is our purpose? What are we fighting for? That, that thought really stuck with me a couple of months ago when Pastor Rob preached on our whole next-gen vision. And this is not another next-gen sermon, so don't get, don't get all upset about that. But this is just a thought that came to me from that sermon. He said, what are we going to fight for? This is our battleground. Do we take a stand here? And I started to think about as a church or as the church, what are we to be known for fighting for? There's a lot of different answers to that question depending on who you ask. What is the church going to fight for? What are they fighting for? Those people over there, what are they fighting about? What are we fighting for as a church? As you look in the book of James, it was written as a general letter to Christians. It was not targeted to one specific church, although James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, in the early church, but it was written as kind of a generic letter, and they were suffering challenges of living in a sin-soaked, fallen world, similar to like we are. And just as you probably know, we live in a world that does not change very much from the past. I work with students, and the reason why we go verse by verse through the Bible is because we want students to know what it's like to live in the local church. We want them to be passionate about God's Word, and we want them to know that it's not all fun and games when you get to, to be an adult, because then when they stop doing all the crazy antics that they do in youth ministry, they go, what's the church doing? It's boring. They just read the Bible all the time, and then they leave, and they find something else that looks like more of what they want. 
And so that's why we preach verse by verse, just like we do in here on Sunday morning to students, so that they can know how to work it out as they go into adulthood. Now, here's the thing. People ask me all the time, I don't know how you work with students. I don't know how you do it. You know what's really funny is it's no different than being a pastor of an adult congregation. Because here's a common thread between a student who's in sixth grade and any of you who are in your 40s, 50s, or up. You ready? You have a sinful heart. And so does a student. So does everyone. It's a common thread that links us all together. We're all sinful. And so where sinful people gather, conflict is bound to abound. It just happens. There's an often quoted scripture where two or three are gathered and Jesus is there. Well, yes, that is, that is absolutely true. But you know what else happens? When two or three are gathered, sinful people are gathered, trouble ensues. It happens. You all know it. Church is messy. It's not easy. But yet is the dearest place. That's why Jesus gave himself for it. Ephesians chapter 5 says, and you don't have to turn there, but just as a, a reminder, Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the church. He loves the church so much that he gave himself for it. He sanctifies and cleanses the church. He nourishes and cherishes the church. It's the dearest place to, to God. So therefore, it must be a dear place to us if we are his people. When we read the book of James, James is dealing with things that are not new under the sun. He's dealing with things like nominalism, basically being a Christian in name only. You think we don't deal with that today? And so that's why in James chapter 1, he spends some time saying, be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer also. Don't be a Christian in name only. Do what God commands. In fact, James loves commands so much that out of 108 verses in the entire book of James, 108 verses, you know how many of those verses are commands? 50. Half of the book, approximately half of the book, is a command or a command of some type. Now, that's not a very popular message, especially in our day and age, where we like to be encouraged, not told what to do. But the book of James spends no, minces no words, and it spends no time making you feel built up. In fact, it tells you instead what you should ought to be doing in light of your salvation in Christ. It's a tough book to read. I tell students often, I feel like I'm yelling at you, but feel, please don't mishear me this morning. I'm not yelling or disappointed in you. I'm disappointed in the sin that I see in myself, and I know that it exists amongst us, and so what I'm asking God to do is to purify and cleanse us and bring us closer to the image of Christ. That's what we want to be. James was dealing with nominalism. He was dealing with genuine faith, people who were not putting their faith into action, because his whole argument in James chapter 2, the one that you guys all know, the verse that is probably most popular when you say the book of James is what? Faith without works is dead. So, so James's point is your genuine faith should result in something changing in your life. It should result in works. A faith that saves you should change you, essentially. That's my own interpretation of that, but not what James says, but that's essentially what he's trying to get at. He's also talking about faithfulness to Christ. That's why at the very outset of the book, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. He wants them to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of trials. This, these are the themes that are woven throughout this book that is very challenging to, to read because it, it kind of comes at you like a shotgun shot. It's just here and there and then everywhere. But these are the overriding themes. There's one other theme, though, that James really hits throughout this book, and it's the theme of biblical community. 
That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, looking at this biblical community. Anxiety and trials have hit Christians hard back in that time, just like they do today. And when that happens, it brought conflict up to the surface. Conflict that resonated or existed below the surface, but the, the pressures, anxieties, and, conf- and, and, and trials of this world brought conflict to the surface among God's people. And so James addresses that in some different ways. And, and, and the goal of this is for us to understand what are we fighting for as a church, as a local congregation that follows Christ. What are we fighting for? So I thought it'd be... It'd be helpful to first define what I think the church is. And you're going to see a constant theme in this definition. What is the church? First, it's God's people saved by Jesus. To be, to be a part of the church, you should be saved by Christ. Now, that means if you're not saved by Jesus and you are here, we welcome you, we love you, we are so glad you're here, but you are not of us if you are not in Christ. Christianity is a very exclusive message, which is not popular in the world today. But it's the reality that if you are not in Christ, you are not part of His church. You can attend, but you're not in or part of the church. So so God's people saved by Jesus, who then do something. They gather to worship Jesus and to encourage one another for Jesus' return. So, so, that, so here's the thing, you are saved by Jesus, you gather with other believers to worship Jesus and encourage one another that Jesus is returning. It goes on, the church is also God's chosen vehicle to spread the gospel of Jesus by reflecting Jesus and preaching Jesus to the lost. Jesus told us this when, when he said in John 13, 34 and 35, how will they know that you are with me? How will they know that you're my disciples? They will know this by the way that you love one another starts here. The way that we treat each other in this place and the way that we treat others tells the world who our God is. That's our greatest evangelistic tool. It is our works and then followed up by our speech that tells them the good news of Christ. But James teaches us that there is conflict risen among God's people. Now, I'm not sitting here laying, leaning back and looking at the landscape of our church and saying, this is what I see. This is common to every place where people gather because, again, sinful people gather, conflict ensues. And so this is a hope for us to do a heart check to reveal if there's any places in this. And I, as I mentioned before, I know I have fallen short in, four, in, in each of these four areas that we're going to cover at some point in my life, and I will probably do it again. And the idea here is that we would analyze this, we would recognize it, and we would ask God to forgive us and remove it from our midst so that we can fight for His glory. Because church is not about us, it's about God. It's not about us. It's about Him. We want to glorify God. And the way that we glorify God is by bringing more people into relationship with God. Because then, as they worship Him, God gets more glory. And that's our mission, is to glorify God. So here are the four things that we're going to go through this morning. Partiality is a conflict that shows itself. Harmful speech is another that shows itself. Division comes up amongst people. And finally, friendship with the world. Those are the four things that James talks about throughout this book, and we're going to jump through some different passages. If you're in James, you can look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 with me, as we'll start with the first one this morning. Partiality. Partiality. James says this in chapter 2, verse 1. 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The first thing James says to do, as, as a church, we should not be marked by people who are partial to one person or another. The original language, which I love because it's so descriptive and gives you great word pictures, is actually this partiality literally means to receive the face of somebody else. You don't walk up to people and go, I am receiving your face right now. But that's what this word actually means, to receive the face. What that essentially is saying is you're making judgments about the external appearances of other people, and then based on that judgment, you're deciding how you're going to treat them, either with love and respect, or you will put yourself above them. That's the, that's the, the hypothetical situation that James is giving us. He's saying, listen, if somebody comes into your midst, in your church, who is wearing fine clothing, has great wealth, and you tell them, sit here in a good place that we have reserved for you because we are so glad that you are amongst us. And then somebody else walks in, and they kind of look a little tattered, a little ragged, or as one of my, my wife's favorite words, they look a little unkempt. Unkempt. They look unkempt. We don't, we don't want you over here. That's partiality. How, how does that play itself out in our, words, in our world today? Well, it plays out in a couple ways. We base factors the same way that they did, like dress, People dress nicely, we're okay with that. Some people say, you dress a little too nice, so that must mean you're another type of person. So we don't know if you are welcome here. Maybe we judge based on skin color. You say that today, and immediately people get defensive, hair stand up on the back of their arms and neck, and they're like, ooh, he's going political. No, this is biblical. We don't judge people based on their skin color. Who walks in the door doesn't matter if they are here to worship Christ or if they're not, and we want to get them to worship Christ. That's the goal. That's not a political statement. That's biblical. That's the sin of partiality if we judge people by the external factors in their life. Maybe we judge them by physical appearance. Some people are on keto. Some people are on Krispy Kreme. We don't judge you by that. We don't, we don't put people on stage because they look a certain way. We don't, we don't put people into positions of ministry because they look a certain way. We put them into those positions because we see that we don't judge the external appearances. We judge the heart because that's what God judges. And that's what matters to us. Do they love the Lord? Are they saved by Him? If, if those things are present, then we want them to be in a place where they can serve the God that they love partiality should not exist. It, th this is where cliques and other things come into play. And this is, again, I, as a student pastor, I see it with students, but, but don't, don't kid ourselves as adults. We still play that game. We still sit with the people who we like, who think like us, talk like us, watch the same shows that we watch, have the same interests as us. Is that not partiality? This is the same thing that plagues every sinful heart, because this is what it is like to be fallen in our sinfulness. We cannot make decisions based on the external factors. God looks at the heart. 
if you need any other evidence, I'll finish with this part for this point before we move on. But Leviticus 19.15 is another command from the Old Testament where God says, show no favoritism. It's a part of commands that crescendos in a verse that you all know very well in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to reflect Christ to the world around us because we started this by saying, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for the glory of God and we want to see more people worship and glorify God. And so how do we do that? We reflect Jesus to the world around us. But the way that we reflect Jesus is by loving them as ourselves and not being partial. Point number two, harmful speech. You can look at James chapter three for this one. James three, taming the tongue, maybe how it's uh, titled in your Bible or another another way of saying that, but let's go to verse 8 through 10. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things not, must not be so. Verse four, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, just a page over. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one, only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? James James spends so much time on the tongue. And, and I, would, I would offer to you that today, in our time, we must be more careful of this than anybody else in human history because our speech carries further than it ever has before. Think about it. Their speech back then only carried to the amount of, of space that they could cover with their speech. But then technology has increased, and now you and I, because of something in our pocket, can reach our words, our tongues, can be blasted worldwide. We must tame this, this words, these, these tongues that both curse people made in the image of God, but also then come together in church and then worship God. These things must not be so. There's something in, misaligned here, right, where we say things about other people, but then we come in here and sing praise to a great God. These things cannot be so. James says things about our tongues like this. It is a fire. It is a poison. It cannot be tamed. It's wild. It's out of control. These things happen when our words are laced with gossip, judgment, and even nitpicking others, it must not be so amongst us in the church. I, I told our last passage of James that we, we went through, we talked about different types of missions that we go on as Christians. And it, again, this is not meant to be a Memorial Day uh, linked, but it just makes sense that it is. So in, in military, there's a lot of different types of missions. There's a reconnaissance mission where you go and you gather facts and intelligence about the things around you, right? Listen, there are some Christians who are really good at doing recon. They're really good at gathering the facts about other people's lives and nitpicking every little detail about it. That is damaging, and it should not be so amongst God's people, because then what we do with that information is typically it comes out of our mouths to other people. We give the report 
We got to give the analysis. We got to give what we found, right? The recon. We got to tell them what we discovered. This is nitpicking. One author said it this way, am I focusing my attention on loving and obeying God's law or am I nitpicking others' obedience and then jumping to conclusions about the actions that they take and the motives that they have? When I do that, I have not loved that person, but rather I've slandered and judged them. How we speak to each other matters. How we speak about one another matters. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in ex- expressing his opinion. Social media, you're an expert in everything. You got, some, you, got, you got fingers, you can type it out. Your words matter. Be careful what you post. Be careful what you say with a lack of information or just an opinion. Scripture says that's a fool. They take no pleasure in understanding. They just like to give opinions. I'd venture to say there's a lot of fools on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and the like, TikTok, all those things. There's a lot of fools out there. Let's not be counted among them. Proverbs 26, 20, and 21, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. What kind of fire are you building? Are you building a fire of encouragement here? Or one of strife? Second guessing? Judgment? Coral? Trying to find out the facts and faults of all those around you? Harmful speech is a conflict that divides in the church and it comes up when things like anxiety and difficulty press on us and it divides. Third point, divisions among people. James chapter 4, divisions among people. James starts with a question in verse 1. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, this is a great question. What causes drama in church? What causes people to not want to walk by each other in the hallway? What causes some people to sit on this side of the room and other people to sit on that side of the room? What causes some people to go to some activities, but they won't go to other activities? What causes these divisions? Is it the other people? We all kind of go, yeah, it's the other person. Is it the stuff in their life that's causing them to be like that? It, it might be. It probably is. He's asking the question, and then he's going to give you the answer. That's no, not all that. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This is a reflection of something he said just a couple of verses prior in verse 16 of chapter 3. He said, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is, this is where I think we, we have to be so careful because the human heart is designed to figure out what you want and make the most of that, to be ruthless, to get what you want. We are, we are really good at getting what we want See David, woman bathing on a rooftop, I want that. What do I got to do to get it? Kill a husband, I'll do it. We're ruthless. We only look to advance our own interests. That is the condition of who we are. It's an ugly reality 
But every single one of us is guilty, no matter how much we want to say it's not. And even when we want to put on that cloak of humility and, and act like we're, we're not self-righteous, what we're really trying to do is gain more of our self-interest because we're trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're about our self-interest. We live to advance it. When James says that selfishness and bitter, or sorry, selfish ambition and jealousy exist, disorder, and, and everything else will follow. The selfishness that he's talking about is actually a word that was derived from a Greek word talking about political divisions and factions amongst people. We, we get so caught up in what we want things to look like. We get so caught up in where we feel comfortable. We're selfish for the things that we want. We want I don't have it, so I want it, and so I'm going to go get it. Or you have something, and guess what? Whatever you have is not enough, so you do whatever you can to get more of that. And you'll fight to protect those things. And if people threaten those things, you're going to take after that, and you're going to fight to protect whatever it is that they're threatening. That could be money. That could be influence. That could be some type of a position. That could be social standing. We're going to do whatever it takes. We don't want those things to be touched by other people, and so we will fight for that if left to our own devices. We're selfish. We want things to look the way that we like them to look. And that causes division amongst us. Bitter jealousy is another problem. We, we covet and cannot obtain. Man, I wish that I had what they have over there. I love seeing their vacation, and I wish their, my vacation looked like their vacation. I wish I could do the things that they get to do. Why do they get asked to do everything? I wish I could do that. Why are they so gifted? Why do they look that nice? Why does their family seem to have it all together? Why do their kids obey when they say come, and my kids are running crazy up in the loft somewhere in this church? What is going on? I want that. That coveting divides us because then all we're doing is comparing our lives to others. And what we're failing to do is something that Scripture over and over tells us to do is, is we are failing to celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives. It's really easy for us to mourn with those who mourn because when other people are sad, we can generate some empathy, maybe, and cry alongside them, or put an arm around them, or, or try to encourage them. But you know when the rubber really meets the road is when somebody else is doing really well, and you're not doing as well, and you want to celebrate with them. Can you do that? That's hard. Celebrating the goodness in other people's lives. That's really a challenge. We can mourn with those who mourn, but do we rejoice with those who are rejoicing despite what is going on for us? See, it's easy to be divided because we all have what we want. We all want things the way that we want them. This is why we continue to run in the same rhythms and habits that we continue to stay in because we want things the way that we want them. We're comfortable. I don't want this to change. I, I like how this is going here. We got a good thing going. Let's not rock the boat. You know, like, let's not invite somebody new into our midst. I mean, you may, you may say, no, no, no. We want, like, there's empty chairs, so we want to invite people. But, but how about, like, your connect group? Do you want to invite new people into that? Or do you like what you got and you're really comfortable in that connect group? 
you know, the point of that would be to raise up somebody in your connect group to go reach other people that then could reach others. And then there's this beautiful thing of multiplication where we continue to see more people reach for the glory of God. But selfishly, we like what we got. And I don't want to rock the boat. It's a tough one. But selfishness and bitter jealousy will create divisions among us. Number four, friendship with the world. Two verses later, James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. That's a great encouragement word for this morning. You know not, or sorry, you not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What's going to cause conflict in the church is when the church becomes way too much like the world. There, there's, uh, you go back to the, the idea of different types of missions, right? You, you had the recon mission. There's also um, you know, there's other types of missions where you could go on where you just try to fit in. I, I used to work at a church in Northern Virginia, and one of my bosses uh, was a former retired Navy SEAL who trained other Navy SEALs. He's very gifted, um, and he was the seal of seals, so much so that he couldn't tell me about 20 nations that he visited because they're still classified. The cases are sealed. He can't tell me where he's gone. Couldn't show me his passport. If that was the real one that he used, probably not. But his name was Todd, and Todd is a very uh, burly guy who could take care of himself, clearly, because he's a Navy SEAL and a trainer of others. But here's the one thing about Todd, and probably is true about other Navy SEALs. If I meet others, I'll tell you. Um, he looks like just an average guy. I mean, there's nothing like, he's not like Captain America looking, okay? I'm not trying to slight his figure. He's a, he's got, he can take care of himself, but he doesn't look like he just walked out of a Marvel movie or a superhero movie. He fits in. He could walk into your mitts and our mitts, and you guys would just think, oh, there's another guy. Just another guy. That's the point, right? Because if you're a Navy SEAL and you're going on a covert secret mission, you don't want to be noticed by the people around you. You want to fit in. You want to be just another person walking around in the crowd, taking care of the business that you're taking care of, whatever that may be. I don't want to ask Todd some of those things. My, my brother and sister in Christ, are you walking so much amongst the world that nobody can tell that you're actually a follower of Christ? Are you on a secret mission? So much so that we can't tell that you are His, that you belong to the Lord of heaven and earth, because the way that you act, the way that you talk, the way that you post, the things that you watch, things that you do, I, the moment you say this, people, people immediately get so defensive and they go, legalism, he's going legalism, don't do that. You can't tell me what's not good to watch or listen to. But the whole point of being God's is that you're set apart for God. You're not for the world. You're not to get so close to the world and lean into the world so much that nobody can tell that you actually belong to somebody else. When you start to just look like all of them, what's the difference? And that type of worldliness will kill the church. 
when we try to act like them and just be buddies with them and do the things that they like to do in the world, we've set ourselves up for failure. The church will fail if we do that. Now, I got freedom in Christ, Pastor Kyle. Like, I I've, I've read Corinthians. I'll read it with you. I'll read Romans 13, 14, 15 with you. I've got freedom in Christ to do these things. I'm not going to spurn my conscience. But does it harm your testimony and your ability to share the gospel with other people? Oh, I love this new Netflix series or this new thing. We're binge watching this. What kind of things are in that? I mean, are these godly things that are edifying to your soul? Are they drawing you closer to Jesus? I tell students this all the time. If you can honestly say after you hit end on that video or that music or that streaming show, if you hit the end button on it, can you thank God for what you just watched, listened to, or read? And if you can honestly thank God for it, then it's worthy of praise, then good. But if it's not good chance it's pretty worldly. This really limits possibly what you can do or watch or, or consume in terms of our media. That's okay. You know what I have found? The less media I consume, the less worldly junk I consume, you know what happens? I actually am more joyful and I actually enjoy life more because my conscience is not seared by the junk in this world. And the more that we lean into the world, do you know what ends up happening? Here's the byproduct of that. What ends up happening is we start to see the church as just another institution that is just like all the other things in the world. It just becomes another thing. It's just another group. There's a, there's a pastor in New York. He said it this way. The church exists as a counterformative community to confront our idolatry. That's the selfishness in us. That's the bitter jealousy in us. So we don't go to church for entertainment. No, what, what we are really working for here is transformation into the image of Jesus. Church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or build self-esteem or facilitate friendships, but to worship God. If it fails in that, it fails. The ultimate goal of church is getting worshipers in touch with God. Now, Church is not for your entertainment. I, I, I'm not that entertaining. I tell students this all the time. I'm not that funny. Pastor Rob is a little funnier than I am, so I'm going I'm to give him that. And when he tells us his stories of when he um, goes out to Walmart after hours, those are great. Those are entertaining stories. But, but if you're drawn to church for the entertainment, that's not a motive. Now, could we entertain you at some point? Maybe. That's not the primary motive. That's not the primary reason we gather. It's not to build you up in self-esteem. I probably have not done a great job of that this morning. Guilty as charged. Because I started out this, this morning by saying that every single one of us has one thing in common. And the one thing in common is that we're sinful. Woo! That's encouraging. Real great self-esteem builder. That's not the point of church. is to make you feel better about yourself. The point of church is to make you feel better about the God who loves you, and then you see that through him, you matter. You matter in him. That's why we gather. We don't gather to facilitate friendships. Is that, that's, not, that's not to say that you shouldn't be with your friends and, and fellowship. That's godly, that's biblical, that's commanded. 
Hebrews 10, 24 through 26 talks about that. Don't grow into the habit of stopping to meet together. You should meet together. But the primary function of this place is not so that you can get closer to your friend group. It's not so that you can have your tight inner circle that you only hang out with. That is not the primary reason why we gather. The primary goal of the church is getting worshipers in touch with God. And we cannot do that the closer we lean into the world. We must be set apart. So, James is hit pretty hard on partiality, harmful speech, divisions amongst us, and friendship with the world. And in the midst of all those commands, you could, be felt, you could feel pretty low. You could be kind of left to being like, okay, what is left for us then? What are we to do? What are we fighting for? In the midst of this book and all these commands, there's one little phrase that brings it all together, and it's James 4, verse 6. Despite all of this, he gives more grace. No matter how many commands he has laid out in here, how many times you have failed to live up to these commands, how many times you've done something that we've talked about in these four different categories or something else that we haven't even listed, no matter how many times, he gives more grace. We are fighting for the glory of God because of the grace that he has shown us. And the grace that he has shown us was shown because, you know what? He fought for you first. He fought to bring you to God first. It wasn't that you were fighting to get to him. In fact, you were fighting against God, and yet God reached down and fought for you. How do I know that? Ephesians 2, you don't have to flip there. I'll read it for you. But Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the one spirit in the Father. Listen, he fought the enmity that exists between us, the enmity that exists between us and God. He fought for us to bring us back to him because he gives more grace. He gives us Christ. He gives us Jesus. And that's why we gather. That's why we said the definition of church that I started off with, the common thread in all of that was Jesus. He is the link. He is the center point of all of it. He's the reason why we gather. He's the reason why we sing. He's the reason why we take time out of our week to listen to somebody talk about his word because of Jesus, not because of entertainment, friendships, or any other things, or self-esteem and boosting. It's about Jesus. That's why we are here, because he fought for you first, and he brought you to him, and he loves you so much so that he gave himself for you. So, so how, how do we move out of those four things and, and away from those as a church? 
by remedying our hearts with this grace, with this gospel that's so good that he has given us more grace and draws near to us. Listen to this in James again. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Here it is, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You realize that you have a God who fought for you and draws near to you. He actually wants to be with you as an individual and then, as an extension, wants to be with the community of people who are worshiping and glorifying His name. Like He wants you. He wants to be with you in spite of all the brokenness, in spite of all the stuff that we have seen that is in us. He wants to be with us. And He wants to be with you as you go with others and bring others to see the glory that he has. So because Jesus fought for us, it should mean that we fight for some things too. Here's what we should fight for. Number one is glory. We fight for his glory. How do you do that? You worship him. You, you, you acknowledge him as the Lord of your life, that he is in charge of all things in James 4, 5, he says this, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Jesus, God, dwells in us. But you know what? He put a spirit in you. And that tells me that he jealously yearns for everything that you have. Every single thing that you have belongs to him. None of it is yours to keep for yourself. It's all for him. He jealously yearns for it. So we give it all to him and give him more glory. And as we do that, more people worship him and bring glory to his name. We fight for holiness. We fight for his glory. We fight for holiness personally in our lives and in the lives of others. We want to see others lifted up and, and, and fighting to live lives that reflect Christ. We don't want to live lives amongst other people that encourage them to sin. We want to live lives that encourage them to godliness and righteousness. We want to encourage them when we see them doing the right thing instead of celebrating when they do things that are against God's word. We fight for holiness. Finally, we fight for the lost. This is the last type of mission that we should go on, and this is how James closes out his book in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. He says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You're not going on a covert mission where nobody can tell whose side of the fence you're on. You're not going on a, on a recon mission to gather intelligence about everybody else around them and then report back to others what you found. That's not your point. That's not your goal. That's not your mission. Your mission as a believer in Christ is search and rescue. Your mission, just like he just said, is if somebody is wandering from the truth, bring him back. Go find them. The cold, hard reality of that is that there are people, whether they're in our midst right now or they were in our midst at some point, there will be people in this building who were once with us but then wandered away from the truth. Bring them back. Win them back. 
by showing them God's holiness, his glory, and then reflecting that back to them through grace and love and not showing partiality, not dividing, not showing your friendship with the world, not speaking ill of them, but bring them back. We are to be on a search and rescue mission. That is what we are fighting for as a church for the souls of the lost. We're not fighting to make this place look like what we want it to look like. We're fighting for those who don't know Jesus to meet this Savior who we know. And if you're in here and you don't know him, that's what I hope you take away from this, is that you are not part of us because you're not in Christ. But guess what? That's okay. We want you to be part of us because we have a great Savior who loves you and came for you and died for you and wants you to be with him. And that is good news. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, he gives more grace and his love will cover the multitude of your sin. You could not even figure out or fathom how much stuff you've done in your life and yet he'll cover it with his love, the love that he showed on the cross. Church, we are on a search and rescue mission because that's what our Savior was for us. In Luke 19.10 it says this, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We're just reflecting Jesus. We're trying to be more like him. So we're on a search and rescue mission. I want to end with this passage because in my Bible it's a page over, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, it, it really hits home what the church is, what, what we're to be about. It sums it all up. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're a chosen race, church. You're a priesthood. You're a holy nation set apart for God as His, designated to Him. A people of His possession. Why? So that you could proclaim the excellencies of Him. The goodness of God that we sang about earlier. Your job is to proclaim the excellencies of Him. Not of, not of who we are, who he is. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a, re- that's a reality where you know what you've been brought from and where you've been brought to. You've been brought from death to life through Christ. Proclaim that excellency. And here's the catch. Without Christ, we were not a people. Sure, you had friends. Sure, you had people groups. Sure, you had your social circles. But you weren't a people. But now you are God's people. And the people in this room who are saved alongside of you are in that same people group. God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. Because of Jesus all because of him. That's what we're about. That's what we fight for. Church is not another institution that you just get to fit into your calendar wherever it it feels good or is convenient to you. 
You fight for the lost. You gather as a church because it's about Jesus. And when Jesus matters that much, you'll move things in your calendar. You will make plans to be with Jesus and Jesus' people in worship. Even if it's inconvenient. Even if it goes against what you wanted to do with your day. Because God's putting to death all that stuff in you that's worldly and selfish and elevating more Christ-likeness in you to reflect His glory to a dying and lost world who needs Him desperately. And that's our mission, to tell them who He is. Let's pray. Father God, it is, it is humbling to be in your presence primarily because I recognize where I have fallen short in these things and yet you give more grace and allow us to worship you with tongues that may have said things about others with tongues that may have been spreading lies or gossip and yet you desire for us to come to you. And you draw near to us. Father, if there are those in, in this room that today, this morning, don't know if they are in your chosen race, your royal priesthood, they're not part of your people, the church. God, may you remind them of your goodness. Show them your mercy and remind them that through Christ, his death on the cross has purchased the forgiveness of their sin. That the love that you showed on the cross covers the multitude of sin in our lives. God, we can't give you enough thanks for that. We couldn't sing enough songs. We couldn't gather enough times to give you what you deserve. God, you are good. You are holy. You are worthy of our praise and our adoration, and we give that to you now. We sing to our Savior to glorify him. That is why we've come together today, to glorify Christ and make Jesus known in this place. Help us to fight for that. Give us the strength to fight for your glory, for our holiness, and for the lost. We pray these things in your precious name.